Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to Top of the Morning on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. Today we are joined once again by Jason Trejo, Head of Asset Allocation for the Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office for our weekly CIO Strategy Snapshot Conversation where we will take some time to talk about the latest house view from the UBS Chief Investment Office for an update on the economy and what we're picking up on in markets and, of course, considerations when it comes to positioning your portfolio. With that, Jason, thank you for joining us again to kick off another week and looking forward to our conversation. Welcome back. Thank you, Daniel. Good morning. Happy Monday. So let's dive in, Jason, to the monthly letter from Chief Investment Officer Mark Hafley. Within, it discussed how hopes of a soft landing for the U.S. economy, how they've improved. So can you speak a bit in terms of how we got to where we are? Put another way, why has the U.S. held up better than expected? Yeah, Dan, this is a topic that we've you know, discussed in terms of you know, recession, likelihood of weather, hasn't there been a recession? And we need to cover again some of those things in, in the letter uh, and also, you know, it uh, you know, has additional information and data since you know, we, we kind of first you know, broached this topic in, at the end of June. And it really kind of boils down to the fact that, you know, monetary policy, you know, has not really gotten restrictive until relatively recently, you know, recently this calendar year. And you could even kind of say not until the spring did the monetary policy start to get kind of restrictive in, in any sort of significant way that would you slow down, you know, the economy. You couple that with the fact that, you know, the economy is just not that interest rate sensitive. Uh, in part because part of the Fed raising rates, you know, homeowners, you know, tr- you know got refinanced their mortgages and locked in at less than 4%, a lot of many people less than 3%. You know, large corporations that can issue debt did so at very low yields, uh, and locked in those rates for a while. So anyone who had sort of locked in financing at low rates is not going to be impacted, at least in the near term, by those higher, uh, higher rates and the Fed raising rates. So you just had that kind of factor. Um, you're just not the economy, just not that impacted by the rise in interest rates. Um, another factor is that you know the, the U.S. economy has evolved over time, but not you not very cyclical. You know, say kind of an economy that's dominated by services, you know, manufacturing share shrunk over time. Services tend to be less cyclical, have less inventories. But just you know, absent everything else, the economy just is going to grow kind of slower and steadier. You know versus, say, 50 years ago, it is just less prone to recessions. Uh, and then another factor is when we talk a lot about, and I'm certainly worried about, you know, the banking situation after we had some major bank defaults earlier in the year, credit conditions, by and large, you know, they're, they're not that tight. Companies are able to go in the, in the public markets and issue debt, whether it's investment grade or even high yield, at, you know, relatively decent yields and certainly spreads that are lower now than at the start of the year, despite the, the banking situation. Uh, we've also had fiscal policy that's actually kind of loosened up to some extent this year versus last year. Um, we're getting sort of implicitly a bit of a tailwind from, you know, the various uh, fiscal packages, whether well, infrastructure package, the CHIPS Act, the you know, Inflation Reduction Act, that are causing sort of higher private sector investment. And that's provided a bit of a you know, marginal tailwind for the economy. So you add it all up, without a lot of restrictions on the economy, fundamentally sound kind of private sector, credit is still generally available. I mean, you kind of look at it that way. It's not necessarily surprising that the economy is held up uh, you know, better than expected. Um, and it looks like it still could be on a trajectory of achieving a soft landing. So, Jason, maybe we could take a few moments and talk about how this has all translated to the markets as of late. And you take a look at equity markets in particular. They've had a, 
a strong run in recent weeks. How much optimism at this point, Jason, do you believe is priced into markets? Well, that's the real question because, you know, we can discuss and debate whether the economy goes into recession or not or what kind of landing we'll get. But ultimately, what does it matter for the markets and for investors? If you just look at the S&P 100, the overall, you know, multiple uh, on a forward 12-month basis, uh, it's at a P is at like over 19, 19 and a half. Roughly. That's an elevated, uh, uh, relatively expensive multiple. So a lot of good news you can say in that regard is, is priced in. If we think about what's happened really over the past two months in particular, it's been uh, almost like a Goldilocks environment for all the news for you know, equities and other risk assets to move higher. You know, we've had economic data like the growth data that's surprised continuously to the upside for the past two months. Uh, and that's why there's, you know, these hopes and kind of expectations that we could get a soft landing. That's gone on while also the inflation data has shown kind of a clear steady decline. And now with the July inflation data that we got last week, you can even see a kind of core inflation, the sticky parts that people were still worried about, improvement there and the expectations that will continue. So you've had, you know, economic data break about as well as it could in support of the soft landing scenario. But then for the markets, it's also, uh, there's been no real kind of tail risks. The debt sitting that was, you know, front and center at the end of May, that ended up being resolved, you know, you know, without really a lot of hiccups. That immediately led to concerns that, well, in order for the federal government, the Treasury to kind of replenish their coffers, we build the, the Treasury general account, the TGA, there's going to be a massive issuance of bonds, and that's going to drain liquidity from the markets. That hasn't really happened either. They've been able to manage that reasonably well. There hasn't been further bank stress. Um, no real major geopolitical issues. So kind of across the board, you have tailwinds and no headwinds. That's kind of the reason why you've seen equities kind of move higher. There's always the concern then that they've kind of overshot what they should be, that the data is not going to continue to kind of hold up you know, that well. There's going to be some sort of you know, negative news come out, whether it's a Fed that sounds like it's, it's you know, too hawkish, whether it's you know, the data, completion data, uh, potentially so, you know, uh, surprises to the upside you know, after kind of falling. So things are kind of priced for... It's not a perfect landing, pretty close to it, um, and it means there's scope for disappointment if anything on whether it's on the policy side, economic data-wise, geopolitical front, end up disappointing. So I do want to talk about market risks a bit later in the conversation, though, in consideration of how the macro environment has evolved, as you laid that out for us a few moments ago, Jason, how might that influence the Fed's policy course from here? I know we have the July meeting coming up in about a week's time. Uh, I suppose I'll ask pointedly as a quarter of a point hike, as has been forecasted, is that still the likely outcome for the July policy meeting? Uh, I'd say it's you know, very high probability uh, that the Fed will hike on July 26, another 25 basis points. Um, you know, that they've kind of guided to that. And what the inflation data was, you know, good, uh, what the Fed wants to see, it's really not enough for them to declare kind of a victory in any way for them to pause after they paused and didn't hike in, in June. So it's not necessarily carbon stone, but I'd say it's as, as close to being kind of carbon stone as you can without that actually happening. So the real focus is then on what does the Fed to do you know, after that. At the meeting next week, they don't update any of their economic projections. They don't update their forecasts you know, for interest rates. Um, the only other same thing aside from hiking rates would be tweaks to the, the Fed statement, but also more specifically uh, the, you know, the press conference after the meeting in which Jay Powell can get outlined what they're thinking. It's unlikely that they're going to change a lot of their recent messaging that they would probably have to hike two or even more times. Maybe they just say, you know, we still expect to hike again, and the inflation data hasn't sort of done enough. So 
actually kind of reiterate the same message. Um, there may be some sort of dovish comments, you know, acknowledge that inflation is coming down. The markets may interpret it in some way. I think the reality is the Fed needs to leave all options on the table at this point in time. Then if you move forward to September, at that point in time, the Fed will have two more months of inflation data. They'll get the July data by August, and then the August data in September before they have to meet again. Market pricing right now suggests they don't hike, you know, or at least with relatively low probability they would hike in September. But some even greater, a little bit greater probability that they would hike at the end of October, uh, and that would likely be the last hike. I think by this point, it's all very much kind of data dependent. Um, you know, if if we continue to get inflation data like we did last week for June, that shows core inflation, in particular, continue to stay you know, relatively contained, and then it's sort of a run rate of these months saying inflation, core inflation is below three percent. I think that the Fed has justification then for not hiking and sort of you know essentially being on pause or being done. Uh, it's important to also realize from a policy perspective that as inflation comes down, if you just keep interest rates where they are, the real interest rate after inflation actually goes up, so policy will get more restrictive from here on out. Um, so even if the Fed doesn't do anything else, it gets more restrictive. If they hike one more time, that's incrementally more restrictive. So I think they have to kind of realize that as that's going on, policy gets more restrictive. At the same time, they could see more clearly evidence of the economy slowing you know, once again, September. So, bottom line, 25 basis points in July is a done deal. I think everything else after that becomes very much data dependent. And if inflation data keeps kind of what's been, it's a good chance um, it's a one and done for the Fed. But I think we'll just have to wait and see how this plays out. With respect to risks to the economic trajectory in the second half, Jason, as you outlined for us a bit earlier in the conversation, what is CIO monitoring at this time? And does that account for policy risk from the Fed as well? Well, I think from the policy perspective, you know, one of the kind of debatable questions to market right now is the lagged effect of the existing Titan. I mentioned earlier that only recently, probably really by about late winter, early spring, did policy become kind of moderately restrictive. Uh, and now it's incrementally getting more restrictive. We know there's a lagged effect on that. The question is, how long is that lag and how significant you know, will it be? Given the momentum of the economy right now, that doesn't appear to be something that's going to happen in Q3, you know, but the implications have become more apparent by, by Q4 and so into you know, Q1 of next year. So we know that policy is going to uh, you know, uh, continue to tighten. We don't know the exact lag effects, so there's, there is that consequence of um, you know, the economy slowing because of what the Fed has already done. And just again, as we mentioned, hiking one more time and holding steady in and of itself gets more restrictive over time. Now, can then the Fed signal at some point that they may moderate rates, in which case interest rates will decline, even if the real Fed funds rate doesn't decline? That could be an offsetting, you know, uh, you know, consequence. But that situation is, is um, you know, further down the line. So the risk is policy continues to remain tight. Uh, some of the consequences of higher rates could cause further bank stress in ways that right now look contained. But uh, as we move into later this year. At some point, companies and, and banks and organizations that need to refinance, they have to do so at higher rates. That can, that's going to start to impinge them. You know, the high yield market that has reopened you know, the, in the spring, um, that companies are able to issue. At some point, they, they won't just have to sort of voluntarily issue, but at some point, they're going to think we have to refinance because we have debt coming due uh, later in 2024, 2025, and therefore we now need to get to the markets now. Um, and as they do that, their refinancing costs and their overall cost of debt goes up. So that can again have you know, negative consequences. So really, I think the biggest sort of known risk to the economy 
as we move later into the second half of this year is just how much will this you know, that has taken place will continue to take place weigh on the economy. In addition to that, there's uncertainty of whether the inflation will is going to end up being a bit of a head fake. It's coming down now, but if the economy ends up holding up too strong, does that force the Fed to actually just continue to do more into next year, which isn't fully kind of reflective right now in the markets? Then you can also factor another geopolitical or, or sort of you know global issues that you know always kind of represent sort of tail risks more so than you know obviously you know, downside risk in the base case. But those things kind of exist as well. That could be alter the impact of the of the global economy and the U.S. economy specifically. So, Jason, with those risk considerations in mind, how are you currently recommending that investors position their portfolios? Well, this goes back to the opening comment of, or one of my welcome comments about what's already priced in the markets. A lot of good news is already priced into equities, into credit spreads, uh, such that at this level, given sort of how they've reacted to the data thus far, it's just a risk reward for, for equities is still not that compelling. Meaning we see limited upside for the S&P 500 overall. Um, not a huge amount of downside, uh, given what we don't see is obvious, like a lot of major risks, you know, in the next few months, um, but not a lot of upside. So then if you're comparing that to the kind of return you can get from high-quality bonds, we still favor the latter. And this is a preference we've had for three or four months where you know, it's kind of favoring high-quality bonds over equities. We've seen now yields rise. You know, especially about two weeks ago after the strong data where like, the 10-year yields got over 4%. It's pulled back since then, but the yields are still relatively elevated. In an environment where we think you know, the economy will continue to slow and inflation keeps coming down, those yields could, could drop. So you get you know, decent sort of interest rates kind of carry from bonds and high-quality bonds right now, but if rates also decline, you get a bit of a total return. Whereas equities, you know, we would think of them as continuing to be range-bound and getting closer to the top of the range. And therefore, you know, any sort of negative news on growth or disappointing news on growth or inflation could get them to kind of you know, pull back. So that's kind of the overall view. You know, with inequities, you know, we've had for the past month this recommendation or the message of, you know, look for equity laggards. We still think that's the right way to think about it. Well, we've seen a bit of a catch-up and broadening out of overall equity market performance after the first half of this year was dominated by the seven major cap tech stocks that really drove everything higher. The rest of the market's going to lag. We've seen a little bit of kind of broadening out and a little bit of catch-up, but there's still definitely scope for those stocks to catch up. If we do continue to trend towards a soft landing kind of you know, outcome, the markets will price that in and those will stand to benefit the most. And if that doesn't materialize, if there's kind of growth uncertainties, um, or even if inflation stays high and interest rates don't come down, it's the those kind of tech stocks, the expensive ones, that we think will end up ultimately kind of you know, catching down. Because outside of those seven stocks, the multiple for the S&P is closer to 15, not 19. It's really being skewed by those really big companies. But a 15 multiple, that's already pricing in you know, a decent probability of a notable slowdown. So it's like it's just a risk-reward perspective. The laggers offer better opportunities in the markets overall. On the fixed income side, the main message continues to be, um, you know, seek out, you know, high quality bonds. It could be, you know, treasuries, the high quality investment grade core bonds, high quality munis, mortgage backed securities, things that right now are giving you pretty good yield, very low kind of, uh, you know, or negligible default risk. And if rates do decline, they will get the benefit of the tailwind from, from lower rates and the better total return. So that's kind of big picture. That's what we're recommending. So not a lot of changes versus last month, despite the fact that the overall economic outlook is improved. We think the markets are already kind of pricing that in. So the overall risk reward at this level, at this point in time, still doesn't remain particularly attractive for equities. That's not a negative view on equities, but just more along the lines of 
no, don't sort of chase the overall markets higher. Selectively look for those laggards to, uh, to add exposure where you're underweight equities. Well, Jason, as always, thank you for dropping by top of the morning to share with us the current thinking from the Chief Investment Office when it comes to the macro environment, the markets, and of course, the guidance when it comes to portfolio positioning. So very helpful to kick off yet another week and do look forward to picking back up with our conversation next week, next Monday, right ahead of the Fed meeting. But wish you a great week ahead, Jason. Thank you again for your time today. You're welcome, Dan, and have a great week. Again, we have been joined today by Jason Dreho, the head of asset allocation for the Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. I do want to point out to our listeners, our clients of UBS, you can now locate the latest UBS Houseview Investment Strategy Guide and monthly letter, that title, Into the Second Half, up on UBS.com slash CIO. For clients of UBS, please reach out to your UBS financial advisor if you would like to receive a copy of the report and monthly letter directly. From UBS Studios, I'm Dan Cassidy. Thank you for joining us. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at UBS.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at UBS.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.